You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Michael. Andre, you know, I heard something the other day, and uh, I think it's very apropos to what's going on in the world. And, uh, you know, we've, we've, we, we had a pandemic, we had a lockdown, we got to the end of that, we, th- we thought, and uh, there's somebody in this world with, uh, with the initials VP who uh, decided to say, here, hold my vodka. <laughs> I can't remember the last time you were actually poetic. I think we need to start recording these earlier in the day. It's um, it's noon on Friday, March 11th, and um, you and I both have a glass of wine, and I think uh, we're doing something a little bit French. We're, we're having wine on our lunch break, which is not something that normally would happen on uh, this continent, but uh, we're joined by Nicola. Hey, speak for yourself, Andre. <laughs> we're joined by Nicola Mealy from um, Chateau de la Chaise, which is in Beaujolais. Which Michael, you and I are thrilled to have a chance to talk to Nicola. And this was set up by Olivia Sue and Nicholas Pierce. Um, I think anyone who's taken a look at like what we talked about on the podcast, or even some of the content that you and I are are, uh, are writing about, we're a big fan of a lot of the wines that Nick brings in. Um, he's kind of the king of the like 20 to $25 really good bottle of wine from regions you might not expect. Like I'm buying Bordeaux from him by the boatload, but it's nice to see more Beaujolais in his, uh, in his portfolio. And it's surprising, Andre, that this is the first time that we're not talking just Gamay from Ontario, but actually Gamay from the place that, you know, the mothership, the motherland. The mother, yeah, the motherland. I, like, of, I think uh, I think we I think we've talked about like my trips there, but we've never yeah. talked to someone from Beaujolais. Correct. So we we'd like to inter, uh, introduce our guests uh, and and have him say hello at least, if that's the only word he gets in on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, Andre. Thank you, Michael, for having me today and for letting me speak a little bit about Beaujolais because uh, this region is quite hot right now in, in the world. It's great to hear that oh. you say it's quite hot because I know Michael and I, we've been doing wine writing long enough that, I mean, you and I, Michael, right from the very beginning of tasting together in the um, the vintages tasting labs and, and this and that, like you and I have always gravitated to Beaujolais, I think up until recently and, and still to a certain extent, it's one of the last great regions in France where you can get a top notch bottle for really good value. I, I've always been a big fan of, of Beaujolais. Uh, personally, and uh, it's interesting also that we are tasting two separate wines, so yes. we can't even compare notes. Yeah, we, so <laughs> I think that was done on purpose, so we can't disagree. Correct. So maybe we should let our our guests talk about uh, about the region first of all, and then we'll get into the wines specifically. How about that? Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, just to, to sum up for people, Beaujolais is just located north of Lyon, uh, the second or third city of France, uh, in the center east of, of France, and it's just between Burgundy and the Rhone Valley. Uh, there is a huge debate to to know uh, if we are in Burgundy or not. I don't think we are going to answer this question today, but uh, the debate is is definitely on. Uh, but let's say we are south of Burgundy, and uh, globally it's 50, 55 kilometers uh, up north uh, in terms of length and you have two different parts the north uh, which is composed of the 10 crews Saint-Amour, Juliena, Chena, Moulin-Avant etc. We can name them uh, later the 10 crews they are mainly located on granitic and blue stones 
subsoils, which are the best terroirs for Gamay. And in the south, you have the clay and limestone soils, uh, where you have also Gamay and Chardonnay, and you produce Beaujolais, Beaujolais Village, and Beaujolais Nouveau, and Beaujolais Blanc. So this is mainly the, the, the location and the identity of Beaujolais, and uh, we have 12 appellations. So Beaujolais Blanc is uh, is Chardonnay, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I just <laughs> knew that. I I wanted to get Andre's reaction to that. Uh, Andre is a huge Chardonnay fan, and uh, I should ask him very quickly, Andre. When you when you visited the region, did you taste a lot of Chardonnay, or did you stick with the Gamay? Oh God, I drank so much. It, it's it's also like it's it's a really big secret. I'm really curious. Uh, I guess this is bearing the lead a bit, bearing the lead a little bit. But does Chateau de la Chaise do they make a Beaujolais Blanc? No, unfortunately not yet, but uh, definitely uh, something we are looking at it, at it because uh, uh, Beaujolais Blanc today is only 2 or 3% of the production in, in Beaujolais and it's growing and the potential terroirs are amazing for Chardonnay. It, it's definitely a passion project from what I saw. I, I visited uh, Domaine de Chasselet and uh, mm -hmm. they had a Beaujolais Blanc that was like 4 euros a bottle. So at the time, like six fifty seven dollars Canadian Um Fully done in oak, no new barrels, uh, beautiful, like full malolactic fermentation. And like for seven euros, it's you talk about the debate for Burgundy. I think if you talk to the producers making Beaujolais Blanc, they're happy to say that they're part of Burgundy. I think it's the Gamay producers that want to keep their own identity there. <laughs> well, then I, I have a real question, though. Um, I like the fact that Burgundy and uh, Beaujolais are, are separate. Uh, I know that the Gamay grape was actually kicked out of Burgundy at one point, uh, something I always like to uh, to reference when I'm teaching classes and things like that, that it was considered a disloyal grape, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. But does Beaujolais really want to be part of Burgundy? I think they've made their own identity. <laughs> Let's say that you have main, mainly, it's, it's complicated, but mainly you have two points of view, the point of view of the négociant, uh, and in fact, in Burgundy, you have only one syndicate of négociant, Burgundy and Beaujolais, but the syndicate of uh, wine growers is different. You have one syndicate in Burgundy, one syndicate of Beaujolais. So the wine growers mainly want to have their separate identities, but for négociant, it's really interesting to have the region include, included in Burgundy because it means more a supply uh, of grapes, uh, if it's possible, when they lack some grapes in, in central uh, Côte d'Or, and they can afford to have more uh, affordable grapes in southern uh, Beaujolais, in Gamay, in Pinot Noir, in Chardonnay. So, of course, it's more complicated than that, but globally, this is the point of view now. Uh, and in terms of history, of course, Gamay was expelled, but Gamay is a crossing of Pinot Noir and Gouet Blanc, a uh, old uh, white grape. And in terms of aromas and evolution of the wine, Gamay wines really look like Pinot Noir when they age. If you taste the old Moulin Avant, an old Morgon, you will say it's it pinots, it's a pinot, and you will really have this this common uh, characteristics uh, in the wines of Gamay compared to Pinot. So uh, if you accept the soil of granite, which is not really subsoils of, of Burgundy, um, let's say that the, the the kind of wine and the tradition of vinification is really, really close. So uh, today, I think uh, Beaujolais produced maybe one third of the Crémant de Bourgogne. Nobody knows that, but it's a huge production of, of, of Crémant de Bourgogne. And we can produce also Coteau Bourguignon and Bourgogne Gamay appellation. So in terms of tradition, uh, it's difficult to say we, we are 100% the same region, but in terms of appellation, we, we share a lot of uh, production. I, 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 you can correct me if I, if I if I'm wrong, but I have a, a bit of a theory about like where this debate is taking place because it takes about 15 years for a vine to really hit maturity, and I'm thinking about 
what happened in the late 80s. And don't worry, Nicola, I'm not going to make you pass judgment on Georges Duboeuf. But I think <laughs> uh, what happened in the late 80s, early 90s with Beaujolais Nouveau and the worldwide phenomenon, Beaujolais was definitely on an upwards trajectory and then very quickly kind of fell down. So I imagine producers in Beaujolais at that point would have been starting to think of ways to fix the reputation. And you maybe wanted to put some distance between your product and Beaujolais at the time. But here we are now, 30 years later. Wait, yep, that's how time yeah. works. 30 years yeah, later and definitely. and Beaujolais is starting to come back to its own. Um, do you think the, the impact of the Beaujolais Nouveau effect may have had an, an influence over this debate that's taking place about what's, what the identity of Beaujolais is? Yeah, definitely. You, you can name three different phases in the recent history of Beaujolais. First, before the 50s. Before the 50s, there was no difference in prices between a Gevrais Chambertin and a Moulin Avant. The vinification was the same. The, the, the approach of the terroirs, the family, uh, the style of the wines were very close. Uh, there were very, very um, close identity between uh, Côte de Nuit and Beaujolais style. And then arrived the Beaujolais Nouveau, in fact, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was a golden age for Beaujolais because it was easier to sell Beaujolais wines in the 80s compared to uh, Burgundy wines. I think it was easier to sell uh, Beaujolais Nouveau and, and make more money in the 80s than selling Romane Conti. Uh, it's maybe exaggerating, but it's it's like that. And Beaujolais at that time was a bit arrogant uh, compared to the other regions. Uh, like everybody who has a lot of success, uh, you you begin to think that everything is is uh, easy, and you you st you stop questioning yourself. You stop improving quality, and we have made a lot of mistakes. Uh, so we we have. Uh, turned Beaujolais into maybe the third most well-known brand in, in the wine world after Champagne and Bordeaux. Everybody knows Beaujolais in the world, but we are mostly known for Beaujolais Nouveau, which was at the beginning okay, but after that it was only for Beaujolais Nouveau and we forgot about the cruise, we forgot about the single vineyard approach, we forgot about the quality wines, and today uh, we said that a Bordeaux, when it, ge it gets old, you, you got more value, and when, when a Beaujolais gets old, you lose value because in people's mind, Beaujolais Nouveau, it's a wine that's it's cheap. It's not going to age for long. And we have a big mix of all of that uh, in all the crews in, in Beaujolais, which is a big problem. And you said, so, so you've identified two, you've identified two like important eras. Like you talked about the pre fifties and you jumped to the eighties. So what's the third, what's the third era then? So the, the third for me is really right now. It means since 2009, 2010, we have a, a complete new generation. Uh, let's say the, 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 the avant-garde, the, the people who, who lead the new generation was definitely the natural wine movement, uh, the Lapierre, the Foyard, the, the Tevenet, etc. All those guys who just, made the exact opposite of what uh, Beaujolais Nouveau was, which means industrial, uh, chemical approach to wine, uh, with uh, not uh, commercial yeasts and uh, uh, banana tastes and uh, uh, chaptalization, adding sugar. We have made all the mistakes possible because it was easy money. And then these guys from the natural wine movement, they just promoted uh, clean wines with a, a strong approach to terroir and, and, and a very better approach to appellation and respecting Morgon cru, respecting Moulin Avant. And from this uh, movement, there is a new generation for 10 years that now tries to work and and uh, and vinify uh, high quality terroir driven wines that really respect uh, their location. And those wines are made for cellaring uh, to, to age well and to have a, a lot of complexity, which is the opposite of the approach of Beaujolais Nouveau. 
In fact, Beaujolais Nouveau itself is not a problem. If you if you drink uh, Chateau Margaux uh, en primeur after two months of uh, vinification, uh, it will be not that exceptional. Uh, every great wines in the world need to be proper vinified with a, a proper maceration and maturation. Uh, if you just have two days of maceration in Cabernet Sauvignon in Chateau Margaux, you you won't have a big uh, pleasure. So it's exactly the same. It's not the problem of Gamay. It's not the problem of Beaujolais. It's just a matter of vinification and and time of, of consumption. So now we are back in the third era of a, like a renaissance in the region with top quality wines. And the final project of that for us is the Premier Cru project because we are supposed to ask for Premier Cru uh, next year. Uh, we hope so in Fleury, in Bruy, Côte de Bruy, uh, to have Premier Cru maybe in 10 years, 12 years because Puy Fuissé uh, asked for them in 2008 and got Premier Cru in 2020. Mm. I don't like that. <laughs> I, 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 I think the concept of Premier Cru is um, just going to drive prices. It's going to push prices up. And I mean, that, that's good for the producers, but that's bad for me, the consumer, who like, <laughs> I like to lean into into Beaujolais because of value. Like, Michael and I will, will frequently split cases of Dominique Piron because you can yep. get like top quality balls for $25. But if we're talking about the who would likely be Grand Cru or Premier Cru in Beaujolais, you know, people like Marcel Lapierre, like a bottle of Lapierre Morgon is still $50 here, which is a lot of money. But you mentioned Jeffrey Chamartin and, uh, and Vos Romanet, like those are wines that go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. You can still get yeah. the top, top level of Beaujolais in the market for $50. And I would hate for Lapierre to become $80, $90, $100 because he puts Premier Cru on the bottle. I, un I understand, but if you look at Meursault Perrier or to, the, the best uh, premier cru in Pomar, uh, they are not Grand Cru, but they're, they're still priced in the market. So it means that the market have already uh, acknowledged and recognized the top uh, terroirs. And if you buy a Moulin Vent Roche Grey, a Moulin Vent Carquelin, or a Morgon Côte du Pie, uh, it's already supposed to be a bit more expensive. So the market is always more advanced than the French institution of appellation. And the Premier Cru is just a, a recognition of that. And just above the fact that we, we are going today to this in 10 years, 15 years, this is not about getting the Premier Cru. This is about pushing the winemakers and wine growers to understand the quality process of vinification by parcel, of har harvesting by parcel, and identifying every terroir. So the idea of this process is really about gathering all together, all the wine growers and say, okay, guys, we have great terroirs. We need to understand and, and identify them. And we, we need to separate them during our vinification to better uh, express their location. That's, that's just about that. If we, if we manage to get that, then it's, it's already a success, even if we don't have the premier cru, because it means every wine grower will know their terroir better and we can express better terroir-driven wines, which is much more interesting for the consum consumer. Uh, Andre, I don't know why you're so worried because uh, you will buy a more expensive bottle than I will. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, but just because I'm willing to spend the money doesn't mean I, I want to. Like I love the fact that like when I was in Saskatchewan, um, I was able to talk to my mom about Beaujolais and give her the crash course. We went to a natural wine bar and uh, like I love that we brought up La Pierre. Like, like, La Pierre is a great wine, not because it's natural, but because it's great wine, even though they are one of the pioneers in the natural wine movement. But I could go to a private wine shop in Saskatchewan and buy what is 
subjectively, but most people would agree, one of, if not the best producer in Beaujolais for $50. For you and I to get a bottle of Latash, we're looking at a few hundred dollars. Are you kidding me? It's a few thousand dollars, my friend. Depends on who's making it. <laughs> So, but I mean, but I mean, that's the point that that's the point that I'm making. Yeah, I'm willing to spend spend the money, but I like that, and, and that's the thing you and I focus on. Even though I'm willing to spend the money, it doesn't mean I don't like not like I'm already tasting. So this, I'm drinking a Chateau de la Chaise Bruyère, a Lieu de la Chaise Monopole. Okay, so let's, let's so let's start talking about the wine yes. since you 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 brought it up. So let's start with the since you're already on on the subject of uh, maybe Nicolas could tell us a little about uh, Bruyère as a as a crew. Uh, and then Andre can give us his, his tasting note, and Nicola can tell us how wrong he is. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so Bruy is, is maybe the, mo the most difficult crew to understand because first it's the largest. Uh, it's a very, very big appellation, more than 1,000 uh, hectares. And, and Bruy is not very homogeneous. You don't have a, one style of Bruy. Uh, it's the more fruit-driven, maybe one of the most fruit-driven crews in Beaujolais. Very uh, full-bodied, uh, red fruits, dark fruits, very round, very appealing, easy to understand uh, in the mouth and, and very easy to share with friends. But you have so many different terroirs inside the appellations that it's difficult to say there's just one style of bruit, which is not the case in smaller appellations like Côte de Bruy or Chirouble or Chena, where the identity of the cruise is, is more important. The wine you're tasting is uh, very special because it's coming from a, a, a mid-slope, uh, one single vineyard, a lieu dit cadastral called La Chaise. Uh, of course, it, it's the same name of the chateau, which is a, a great chance for us. And we are the only owner of this parcel. Bruy, mainly the granitic soil are, are located, uh, especially in the south and, and on the southwest uh, of the side. And, and La Chaise vineyards are all around the castle. We are very lucky to have just one contiguous land, 100 hectares of vineyards in one piece. And La Chaise is one, one part of this piece. And in fact, we are all mid-slope, not in the valley, which were, for example, we were completely uh, protected from frost from last year. And this location uh, with the facing southeast and a, a great uh, granitic soil gives you very elegant and very complex wines. And this kind of wine, especially this Lyodi, is more uh, aging potential wines that you can uh, vinify for uh, 10 to 15 years cellaring uh, 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 potential than uh, just a wine to, to drink in two to three years. Definitely this terroir is one kind of wine uh, that shows the potential of, uh, of cellaring of Beaujolais. Andre, you want to give us your, uh, your note? Um, I actually had to do a quick Google search to see if 2019 was a hot vintage. Was 2019 a hot vintage? <laughs> Tricky question uh, okay. because uh, uh, let's say that the maturity is high. We had quite a hot summer, that, but there were so many roller coasters in terms of uh, rain and and heat wave. We have a heat. We had a heat wave in June, uh, then a lot of rain and and etc. So the the fruit is really mature. You can you can classify the vintage as hot in terms of maturity, but regarding the color and the freshness and the acidity. It's difficult to 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 say it's a hot vintage. We 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 say that it's a classical Beaujolais vintage because this is not as heavy as a 2015 or a 2009. It, the wine is a bit of um, a contradiction in itself, but it's also what's great about Beaujolais because the nose. I asked about how hot the vintage is because the alcohol is a little present on the nose. It certainly 
not quite what I was expecting. And, and Nicola, I don't know if you had a chance while you were down here, but we grow a lot of Gamay in Ontario. And I yep. find even in a hot vintage, because it is one of the earlier ripening grapes, will hit maybe 13% alcohol. I don't know, unless you're making it at Stratus, that you're hitting 14% alcohol. And so that was a bit of a surprise. But on the palate, it does deliver a lot of concentrated flavors. It's fruit-driven, as you said. The first sip that I had really had a bit of earthiness and spice on the on the finish. But I'm finding like the second, the third sip, um, it really is completely fruit-driven. The tannin is short and soft. I know you said that this has cellaring potential, and I do agree with you. But this is also one of those wines where 12 months from now, if you decided to open it, you could do so easily without regret. Like once that tannin completely softens, like this is going to be a, a fruit roller coaster from like start to finish as it rolls off the back of your tongue. Classical Beaujolais flavors, like all sorts of cherry, but mixed in with that little bit of rusticness, like wild strawberry or uh, blackberry. Even um, this is it's solid Beaujolais. It, Thank you, thank you. I, I agree. I agree with your description. And uh, uh, Gamay is always, uh, if you if you want to compare, I, I think there's no problem to compare with other grapes to try to identify where we are. It's always a, a combination of three other grapes. It's if it's very elegant, very delicate, and and when it ages, you really go to Pinot Noir, especially at Lachaise. Uh, you really think you are in Côte de Nuit or some Volnay or Pomar, especially when it's 10 years old, 15 years old. It's really impress impressive. Then if you are in hot vintages and it's quite young and you have peppery spices uh, notes, and then you can really think about Syrah. And Syrah is not that far because it's planted on granitic soil in Côte Rôtie in Northern Rhone. But in, that, in this kind of vintage, when you have maturity and freshness, I, I, it's really about Grenache. Uh, sometimes if you drink very um, fresh Grenache from the Southern Rhone, sometimes you can have comparable aromas with Gamay. So Gamay is always very interesting because it can bring you to different areas in the world. And you it's always the best trick in blind tasting to bring a Gamay on old Gamay because if people don't know Beaujolais, they will always miss uh, what it is uh, exactly. Interesting. I always, I always find that uh, that Gamay kind of is very comparable to uh, some of the great wines in the world, such as, or some of the great grapes in the world from different places, Pinot Noir, uh, Sangiovese, because it's it's got that really lovely, uh, lovely acidity, uh, great with food, uh, always. It doesn't seem to matter, you know, whether it's Cru Beaujolais or whether it's Village. Uh, it always just has that great acidity, so it's a very food-friendly kind of wine. Uh, and then um, the other one, which is not a great variety, obviously, and it's a blend, it's uh, Valpolicella, because Valpolicella does have that really lovely uh, acidity to it. It's also a very food-friendly wine, uh, but it also has that great fruit characteristics. Uh, and I, I always think of Gamay when I when I think of those other three uh, wines and wine styles. Um, so, you know, I agree. to me, it always fits in with those great, great food-friendly, easy-drinking uh, uh, wines, even when they're crew. Um, because, you know, I love crew. I've, I have a, a number of crew Beaujolais, but I also love a, a, a great village. They're just wonderful wines. 
Thank you. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and Gamay was completely underrated for years. And now we come back to it uh, because we we see the uh, the potential of Gamay to really be a translator of the terroir, like uh, like Pinora, for example. And Andre, Andre, you talk about uh, alcohol and, and uh, hot vintages. We have more and more hot vintages since 2009, huh? 9, 10, 11, 14, 15, 17, 18, 20. This is all uh, considered as hot vintages. And Gamay was uh, had a bad reputation in the past for its acidity, and now it's a big advantage for us. Uh, I think Gamay is one of the big winners of uh, global warming because, totally. uh, for example, in 2020, we have big alcohol levels, sometimes 14, sometimes 15, but the acidity level is so high, uh, the acidity was not destroyed during the 2020 vintage, it was very high even at the, uh, at the harvests. And then in the mouths, you, you're tasting a wine which is 15% alcohol, but the acidity is so high that the balance is perfect. And that's the big advantage of Gamay, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's fascinating. Like I, like I said, there's the there's one winery in Ontario called Stratus that have a reputation for harvesting Cabernet Sauvignon in November and December. But I know a few years ago, their winemaker, uh, sorry, I can never remember, it's JL, right? JL? Yep. Yep. Uh, he made a gamay that we thought for sure was Californian. Like it was just like, well, it was 14, 14 and a half percent. I think he let it, he, he must've, uh, he must've about it. <laughs> picked that in sometime in November as well. He just let it, let it go. But and in fact, I balance. opened one of those very recently uh, and was it? it was really hard to drink. Really? You didn't, the acid didn't hold on or? No, fourteen and a half percent does not really uh, lead, lead itself to uh, to really great gamay. And I can ask Nicola: oh. Is there is there many times that you've had fourteen and a half percent, or is that is the brie fourteen? The brie the brie is fourteen, and it it might I'm guessing yep. it might be chemically a little bit higher than that. Uh, no, it's fourteen. In fact, it's fourteen point oh one. Okay, exact, uh, okay, so right on. But the, but but he's he is correct in that the the acid. Like the back of my palate is clean. All I'm getting is a little bit of that tannin fuzz, and like the rest of the bottle. Since it's noon here, I'm gonna enjoy this after work. And I think by about- I've seen you. I'm seeing you pour that. You're not enjoying it after work. You're probably gonna be finished by the end of this podcast. <laughs> that's the problem with so, us now actually having a video feed. So there you go. Um, so so, so my, I'm, I, see, I'm looking at the the Fleury here. Yeah, let's talk which, about which is uh, 13%. So from the same vintage. Uh, we have uh, we have thirteen percent. So, uh, Nicolas, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Fleury as a region, uh, and then I'd also, before I give my note on the on the Fleury, uh, I'd like to know um, what crews you're making your wines from, because obviously you have two Bruy and Fleury, but what are the other crews that you're you're making Beaujolais from? We we are lucky to have Bruy, Côte de Bruy, Morgon, and Fleury. So four different crews. Excellent. Uh, so let's say that uh, if we had some Moulin Avant, we have the five most well-known crews in Beaujolais because you have in the 10, you have te- five stars and the, the other ones are a bit less known. But all the 10 are really interesting in terms of identity. Chiroub, for example, is maybe the crew of the of the future because Chiroub is very high in altitude and it's very interesting in hot vintages. Uh, so Chena is uh, maybe the best terroirs of Moulin Avant, uh, etc. So all the 10 crews are really interesting. Uh, Fleury is one of the most well-known, of course. It's one of the most granitic crew, Chiroubl. And uh, Fleury is a big producer of great terroirs and a lot of candidates for premier cru. Uh, For example, La Chapelle des Bois, Champagne, La Madone, uh, etc. Les Grands Fers, La Roilette, uh, Les Mauriers. 
Fleury's really the home of a lot of amazing terroirs and, and future big, big uh, uh, wines. Uh, and, and already today, wineries producing Fleury are quite stars. And you think about uh, Claude Laroualette, uh, right. uh, for example, uh, one of the top, top uh, producers there. So Fleury is really interesting because very homogeneous compared to, we said Bruy is really complicated to understand because it's, it's more di different in terms of soils. Fleury is really about pink, a typical pink granite. Uh, so the, the wines are really also quite easy to, to recognize because it's a, it's a good coincidence, but the wines really like the name of the village. The name of the village is Fleury, meaning floral in in um, in French and in fact those wines are really into this kind of floral delicate aromas not too many tannins uh, very very ethereal and it's it's always like that I, even if you are on a village or uh, a blend side or if you are on a very uh, complex uh, single vineyard it's always like that it's, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that though because you, you mentioned Claude de la Roulette and at, at the same time Claude de la Roulette are not known for making particularly I say this as a compliment if any, anyone from Claude de la Roulette is listening to this, but they aren't elegant. They they kick you in the yeah. face with concentration, and it's it's they're really trying to push into that like Pinot esque like I'm going to see how concentrated I can make this. I'm going to see how big I can make this. And I mean they're great, Michael. Have you ever had Claude de la Roulette? I do not believe so. I will. But I will I, track I, down I, a bottle. I am, and bring I you am really enjoying this 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 Fleury, and it's um, it's really interesting because uh, I, I I I always taste with a pencil. I I'm I'm holding it up, up into the video, but I have not made another note since uh, Nicolas started talking because I, I I my first note right off the bat from nose to taste was lovely, delicate, and floral. Uh, which is it's just screaming right out of the uh, out of the glass on the, on the palate as well I, I just really enjoy the sour cherry the the wild raspberries the the white pepper uh, but that acidity just cleans everything up and it you know Andre's talking about a wine that he has it's 14 percent that he could smell alcohol and and the moment he said that because you would say you had talked about 19 I went back to my glass and I started sniffing at it and I'm like I don't know what the hell he's talking about and realizing I don't even have the wine that he has so that, you know, I, 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 I you know, usually I, 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 when we're tasting the same wine, I'm like, Oh, I don't know what he's talking about yeah, sometimes, but, <laughs> but, but, but this time having a different wine, I think I'm happier to have this wine, uh, because of that lovely delicacy that this wine has 13% acidity that is, and I love a good acidic wine. This would be great with so many different foods. Um, it's it's uh, it's absolutely love that little little note of white pepper that comes in here. It's just a wine that I I I, I want to sip on, but I also want to put a chill on, put a little sleeve on it, get it into the fridge for about twenty minutes, and then my question uh, to you, Nicola, is what is your thoughts on one chilling Beaujolais? Is it one of those wines that needs a chill or does not? And then two, I'm going to go into glass style. Which kind of glass do you recommend that Beaujolais is good for? So first question, in fact, we have no problem about chilling the wines. We think Gamay should be drunk a little bit 
uh, chiller than a Pinot Noir. Uh, so if you talk about classical village uh, appellation like Fleury that we have, if it's just out of your cellar, 13, 14 degrees Celsius, it's perfect. Uh, if you have a single vineyard, which is a bit more uh, complex and, and, and more um, aged, maybe you go to 15 or 16. But Gamay, I think we all, we think it's it should be a little bit drunk, a little bit chiller than, than Pinot Noir. Uh, then for the glass, uh, it's really interesting because we asked uh, Riedel uh, from uh, Austria to to come uh, with all their glassware at the estate a few years ago and uh, let us taste all our wines in all their glasses. And of course, we thought uh, stupidly that the best choice at the beginning would be the Burgundy glass uh, because of the, um, the link with Pinot Noir. But in fact, the Gamay, our Gamay, was not very expressive and interesting in the burgundy glass of Riedel. And in fact, the best uh, impact and the best concentration of flavor and the best interest in terms of glass was the Zinfandel and Riesling glass from Riedel. So white wine and Zinfandel glass. Interesting. Well, yeah, I now I have to look, look at, at the, uh, the glasses for that. Oh, so they put Riesling and Zinfandel in the same glass for Riedel. That's interesting. Okay, so I think so. Yeah, okay, I think so. It's a one category. Michael, I'm going to let you ask the next question. I'm going to run downstairs to grab. It looks similar in shape to the regular white wine glasses that we have. Mine are downstairs. I'm going to go grab one. Talk amongst yourselves. Got it. So I'll I'll be talking to Nicola while uh, while you do that, and then I will also go grab a white wine glass. So we'll uh, we'll we'll very often uh, not do this. <laughs> so, so Nicola, I do have a question with regards to closure. And uh, Andre said to me that he has a he, he has a natural cork. Uh, I opened mm -hmm. up mine and was almost aghast to see that you have a um, uh, a plastic cork or or what is called a noma cork uh, yep. in this in this wine, uh, which to me uh, is is saying that you do not think the fleury will age as well as say the the bruit will will age. Uh, am I correct in that, or is there some reason that you go with these plastic pieces of crap? Or uh, it's not plastic, Michael. Get off of it. No, no, these are these are Noma. He said they're Noma, so they are plastic, and and I don't I don't care what they say about these things. They do not age well. I have been through so many of them, and I'm trying to talk winemakers, if nothing else, to at least tell me underneath your uh, underneath your capsule somewhere on your bottle say that it's synthetic cork because I will buy synthetic cork wine, but if it says somewhere, then I know to drink it sooner. If I'm aging it and I get to the, you know, 10 year mark, the 15 year mark. And I open and see one of these things underneath. I am almost guaranteed. I am 95% guaranteed that it is going to be a wasted wine to drink. And I have yet to, to, to be proven wrong on that. Uh, the only time that I have been proven wrong was one really rich, uh, California wine. And I think it just had so much fruit in it that it just, <laughs> it was going to, it was going to win no matter what. <laughs> Uh, but but ninety five percent of the time the plastic corks uh, uh, after after five years are are a disaster. So Nicola, tell me why you chose this particular closure, and and if I'm right or wrong about my assessment about the the longevity of the Fleury versus the Brie. <laughs> yeah. So the first approach is that we try to have two different range in uh, we have a range and inside two different wines single vineyards on one side and and blends and what we call village or blends on the other side the villages the, the blends we always have one bruit one fleury one Côte de bruit one morgon they're always 
there are always blend of different areas of different parcels and you have every year one wine out of one village those wines they are vinified and and they are uh, yeah they are vinified to be drunk in six to ten years this wine should be on the fruit easy drinking to share with friends uh, to to pair with any food, uh, it's it's our the heart of the range, and it's easy to understand. This wine, if we want to keep the fruit, you need to to imprison the fruit inside the wines. It's not the wine that will age for thirty years. It's not the point. So if you need to do that, we we start with with different tests, and we uh, we were asking about different types of corks. The first test that we made on the nineteen that you got was Noma cork. So they say it's about sugar cane. So you call it plastic, but they call it sugar cane. So I won't go into the debate. I, I let you have a podcast with these guys at Nova Cork, but for us, it's sugar cane. And then, it, of course, the wine with this cork will maybe not age for 40 years, but it will so keep the fruit fresh that even if the wines uh, travel a, li a little bit, if you open it uh, right now only two years, the, fresh will, the fruit will still be very, very fresh. And that's exactly what we want to achieve on those kind of wines. Then we started this year to change and go to Diam. And we changed to Diam 5 uh, because we have made some different tests. And of course, it's difficult when a project like us starting in 2017 to have a, a, a big um, uh, feedback and, and big track record on corks. But our tastings sessions showed that maybe Diam was the best way to protect this fruit. So now the, the Fleury 2020, the, the same one you got will be corked with Diam 5. Okay, so <laughs> so you. so I mean, you're kind of making Michael's argument about the quality of Noma Cork as a closure that you moved away from it pretty quickly after after they're using it. So it, it's it's not a matter of quality. Uh, unfortunately, we think the quality of the wine was good, but it was both the the image, as you said, you're not the first person to tell us. I think it's plastic, uh, so that's that's a problem for us because this is our image. So that's the first argument. And then, of course, the tasting uh, showed that the M5 was a bit, maybe a bit uh, more faithful to the wine than the Macor, but the, the, the difference was not that much. So it's, it's, it's more about our image uh, than, than anything else. And on the single vineyards, it's the opposite approach. We want the wine to age forever. And of course, we have no choice than to put the best uh, natural cork as possible. And we go to the Endetech uh, uh, family of cork, which means that is top quality natural cork with uh, TCA-free approach. That's, that's all I can say is is thank you. Look, I am not trying to put Norma Coke out of business. I, I am that is not my my job. Um, I think that they 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 do a good job. I just what I really want is I want producers to tell me that they have this kind of cork underneath either on the back on the yeah. back label, so that when I open it up in ten years, I at least had a warning that it might not last that long. And I again, Andre, I don't want to get off on my on my cork on, on my cork soapbox. I, I don't think it's the same I, closure. I've been with you when we've opened plastic closed wines. I don't think it's the same closure, but I then I do agree with you. Like it is highly suspect that people like Thomas Bachelder and now we have 
uh, Chateau de la Chiesse, who have also moved away from the closure almost as quickly as getting to it. And that's Nicola. That's a separate debate, separate podcast for another time. I actually think we may take you up on, I, I think, Michael, it may be worth reaching out to people from Noma Cork to see if they'll come on the podcast so you can just yell yep. at them for an Well, yeah. I, vis- I visited them years ago and I can tell stories, but... Uh, so let's, so- let's, let's, move, let's move back to the wine. I've, I've switched my wine from, I was drinking out of a Burgundy glass, and that's generally my default setting for Beaujolais, uh, especially yep. what I'm drinking, like uh, La Pierre, Dominique Piron are both wineries that I think are aiming in a more Pinot-esque style with their um, their vinification. This Bouilly, once I moved it to the smaller glass, the uh, alcohol has been tamed. It's completely under control. I'm not getting that warmth on the nose that I was getting in the bigger glass. I think the uh, alcohol was just pooling in the in the fishbowl and hitting the nose. And... Yep. Um, even on the back palate, this wine's only been open for forty-five minutes. The tannin is much softer in the uh, in the white wine glass. It's, yeah, it's, it's still, it's, it's, the fruit flavors are still the same. The, the fruit flavors mirror what I was getting in the bigger closure in the bigger glass. Yeah, I opened the Marsanet uh, two thousand eighteen yesterday at home, and it was quite high in alcohol. In the Burgundy glass, the alcohol was dominant. So, um, Andre, I'm going to uh, uh, speak to uh, to the Fleury in um, in three different glasses. Yep. So I had uh, I had a Burgundy glass. I loved the acidity that I that I got out of that, and it's something that I expect from Burgundy glasses in Chardonnays and Pinots to really accentuate the the acidity. Uh, I moved it to a white wine glass. Uh, I found the nose to be lovely, but I, I found that it didn't do anything for the palate to make me go, wow, that's that's really changed it. But it did close up the acidity a bit. Um, I have this weird glass that I received from Don Maximiano um, a long time ago. And uh, it is, it is, I can't, I don't even know how to explain it. It looks like a Bordeaux glass, but it it's, it's a little slimmer. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Nicola, uh, the nose is atrocious. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even want to put this in my mouth. But the interesting part is when I do put it in my mouth, the fruit just roars. The acidity is a little bit more tamed, but you know it, it speaks more to uh, to cherry and ra- raspberry, and and white pepper, and then the floral also comes onto the nose onto the onto the palate. But um, the nose does nothing to make me want to drink this wine, and and I think <laughs> so. If one you have a Don Maximiano glass at home, do not drink this wine out of the Don Maximiano glass. <laughs> Correct, but I mean, I, I mean. Uh, the palate is fantastic. I would drink it all day long. It's just I can't. I can't smell it because it's, it's terrible. All, all right. It, it... Sorry, Michael. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just looking at the time here because we've been talking for forty some minutes. And one of the reasons we were having you on was actually to talk about the estate, uh, Chateau de la Chaise. And and before we hit record on the tape, uh, it turns out I've actually been to the property. That would have been n- nine years ago in 2013. Um. And I, uh, what I remember about the estate is a beautiful garden out front with topiaries. And if you've uh, if you've ever read The Shining by Stephen King, topiary gardens are <laughs> they kind of creep me out a little bit. But I also think they're wonderful. Like just the amount of of effort that goes into styling. Michael, have you read the book? Uh, the Shining. I think I saw the movie. I do love Stephen King, but that's another story. Uh, it's it's I like some of his mid. Is mid-range stuff somewhere on Tommyknockers and it. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and like so, so in the in the Shining in the book, there's a whole scene in a topiary garden that is way more terrifying than 
the uh, the scene in the hedge maze in the movie. So if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend doing it. But then I also remember just uh, like the the massive uh, chateau and the wine shop, and that's and that's about it. I visited a, a lot of wineries. So I'm glad to have a chance to revisit these. But you said that there's a lot of uh, changes that have taken place at the winery since the last time I was there. Yeah, it's it's uh, hard to to tell everything that has changed since 2017 in in, in only a few minutes. But uh, uh, I invite everyone to come to the estate because it's maybe today in France, maybe the most ambitious wine project today in France. It's a 100 million euros investment in total in the property. Uh, so if we make just an identity card, just rapidly about the estate since 2017, we acquired vineyards in Côte de Bruy, Fleury and Morgon because before La Chaise was only in Bruy. So now we own 150 hectares. So we are the, the largest family owned estate, certainly in South Burgundy. Uh, and maybe the largest chateau, uh, wine producing chateau in the entire uh, region uh, with the uh, 150 hectares. And we have, of course, 100 hectares in one piece in Bruy, protected by forests and woods. And in total, we have 500 hectares. So we have a, we have a huge property. The property is largest, larger than the Côte de Bruy appellation itself. Wow. So it's, it's very, very important. And it's a huge responsibility for us to uh, start projects around biodiversity and using our woods to uh, be carbon neutral and use renewable energy because now since 2017 the castle will use only geothermal energy and solar panels uh, to produce its own electricity and the final goal is to be self-sufficient in, in energy so that's a, a big part of our project because the owner uh, had uh, previous activities in renewable energies uh, wind farms solar panels dams so now we try with geothermal and, and solar panels to to do that again and it's uh, we call it the autonomous uh, village so that's a huge huge project we invested 22 million just in the winery to renovate the winery from the 18th century is as long the the roof is as long as notre dame de paris in paris and it uh, covers the, the longest cellar in beaujolais 108 meters where we changed all the the foudre the oak vats and we installed 50 new oak vats in the longest cellar in beaujolais so it's a it's a huge investment and we built uh, an underground winery in the mountain just in front of the old ones just to store the wines and bottle everything and we connected the new winery and the old one to have a full gravity system because some of the top cuvées will now be completely uh, bottled uh, by gravity so from the harvest by hand in small crates to the final bottling line uh, the wine won't see any pump so, so Nicola, I, 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 this is this is just blatant. Uh, I, I don't, I don't even know what it's called, Andre. But um, it, it, to to bring Andre and I out there will cost you less than a hundred thousand euros. Uh, we'd love to see what's going on there. So, if you want to invest, uh, you know, a, a few hundred euros in a couple of a uh, couple of wine guys coming out and checking it out and and podcasting <laughs> with you right there Michael. at the property, we'll definitely. Uh, uh, definitely love to come out and check that out. You're completely be a pleasure, Michael. Um, I, I guess the one question I have before we start getting to the the wrapping though is you talked about replacing all the all the foudre, uh, and I know for certain wineries it's a point of pride when you have older foudre and just the fact that the wood has no impact. Blah blah blah. What was the main reason behind getting rid of the um, the old foudre? Is it uh, like I, I guess I'll let you just go ahead and, and tell me what the reasoning was. 
Yeah, they, they, for us, it was very, very old. Some of them were 70 years old and it was not clean enough to, to make wine in good conditions, we thought. So it was good time to start over. The whole project was about, let, let's start over. Let's uproot 70 hectares of vineyards and, and replant. Let's change everything. So the food, we say, we change everything in three years, not to, to have too much impact on the wines. So we changed uh, one third in 18, one third in 19, one third in 20, which means now, the 2021 vintage will not see any new oak. So that's a good thing. And and in fact, uh, we, we asked to six different coopers. And if we if you have big uh, big size, uh, like 9,000 liters, 6,000 liters, 3,000 liters, even if they are new, the impact of wood is very, very low uh, because it's a big size. So Gamay is very fragile, very prone to uh, wood, uh, wood taste. And we think personally, that the taste of new barrel, a small one, it's a bit too much for Gamay. Some Gamay in great terroirs like Moulin Vent, Morgon Côte du Pic, can really handle new new oak barrel. But for, for Brouilly or for the other appellation in general, Gamay prefers to have just small um, micro-oxygenation with the, with the wood or with concrete. But if when it's new and small, it's it's too it's too strong. So we changed everything and it was done. And to come back to the viticulture, we also decided to change uh, the tracing system because as you know, Beaujolais is very well known for gobelet pruning. Mm -hmm. And gobelet pruning is uh, very ancient. It's a tradition in our region. It's very high density, but it's not very adapted uh, to uh, organic uh, conversion. We, we will be certified organic this year in 2022. And in fact, if you want to plow the soils, if you want to manage your cover crops, if you want to have a better air flows uh, in your uh, in your rows, etc., goblet can be an obstacle. So we decided to change that, and we are going to switch entirely to double cordon royal, and we are going to trellis every rows and to enlarge a little bit the rows from one meter to one meter forty. And that's a big revolution in, in the region because normally 90% of the region is goblet pruning. And now we are the leader in saying we need to change our viticulture system if you want to be organic on a large scale. So, um, uh, first of all, I, I want to uh, to tell you, Nicola, that uh, 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 the, now that the wine has been in this Don Maximiano glass, it smells a hell of a lot better. So, it's been Thank there you. a while. So. It's been it's it's come accustomed to its new home and and it smells a lot better. Still tastes great, so I'll, I'll say that. Uh, to your point about uh, the the larger barrels, um, and, and I don't know if this is 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 all over France or just for the Beaujolais region or just for your winery, but uh, having visited Italy a number of times, I know that especially with Sangiovese and Sagrantino, uh, they are starting to get into the larger barrels, the older barrels, and away from uh, also French barrels. Sorry about that, Nicola. I'm just I'm just saying they're they're getting into the the Slavonian oak and stuff like that. But um, it's nice to see, and, and that allows, and that allows the fruit to to express itself better. Uh, it it allows for oxygenation to be better. Um, it just it just uh, uh, makes a nicer wine. So I'm glad to see that you are also uh, leaning in that direction uh, with your your Italian counterparts with wines that are either delicate or uh, when they get too much oak, uh, just just end up getting crushed by 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 oak so uh older smaller barrels uh larger barrels 
um uh, you know that's it's great to hear and that the that the, the wine industry that you know andre and i love are are creating or starting to realize i guess that um you know oak does not have to be the dominating uh robert parker experience that people are 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 have been come to know I guess. well you you just andre that question that's usually well. There was no question. It was a comment. It was it was totally a comment. Whereas I didn't ask him anything. If you noticed, where I Andre, if, I were to, if I were to Andre the the uh, the uh, comment, I would have talked for five minutes and, and then, then had a question at the end that had nothing to do <laughs> with what, with what I had just yeah, said. He got it. <laughs> <laughs> no, so 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 I I know from my ex- experience, like having visited some of the wineries in the Rhone, that they're starting to move to the. Um, uh, the punchins. I can't remember. I just can't remember the uh, the food. The, the punchins. The the large. You know the, the, the large. Five, the five hundred and fifty liters. Six, but 6, I know thousand liters. The nine thousand liters. Yeah. No, no, no. The the punchins five hundred and fifty liters. And okay. like, this is uh, at Domaine de Gamizière, where like everything was in two hundred and twenty fives. And you can see like there's a line in the sand around twenty twenty where they're starting to bring in the larger barrels. So I don't know if um I don't know if that is a trend across Beaujolais and Burgundy where we're starting to see. I I, I can guarantee you that no. One in France is bringing in Slovenian barrels. Uh, that uh, no, I, I'm sure they're not. It's it's very it's very Italian. But but what I'm saying is that that I have a a, a producer that I know of in um, in Sagrantino Il, uh, Il Bucale, and and he made a, a like a five or six year uh, trend where he moved out of all of his small barrels. And he, you know, he did, uh, you know, 20, uh, 80% small barrels, then six, then 60, then, then, uh, 40, then 20, then no, all to large barrels. And his wine has improved immensely and tasting through that, um, through that progression was amazing how, you know, six years ago, his wine was just all wood and maybe a little bit of fruit and a lot of tannin. And, and now, uh, he's just sent me, uh, uh, uh his new Rosso. And I have the Sagrantino as well, which I'm really looking forward to. But his new Rosso is absolutely just fruit-driven. Granted, it's 14.5%, 15% alcohol. And uh, I don't remember what my glass, last glass tasted like. But I remember the glasses up until that point were absolutely just delicious. I, I, there was no question there either. Sorry, I was waiting. To Correct. See what it's all comment. It's all commentary now. It's it's we we stopped asking Nicola. We're just looking at his face, um, and <laughs> and watching him. Nicola, I want to tell you that your wines are 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 wonderful, and I am so glad that they are, are that are, they are coming into uh, Ontario. I want to thank Nicholas Pierce for you know finding these wines and and bringing them to us. Yes. Uh, and Nicola, do you have anything final to say besides Andre and Michael? Your tickets are in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. No, thank you very much for everything. I think it's a, the best timing to to talk uh, again about Beaujolais uh, in the world in every markets and and to talk about Beaujolais uh, on the terroir, on the cruise, on the appellation, on the vinification, on the technical side, and on the new generation. And and we we don't we are not ashamed of Beaujolais Nouveau, but it's it's something in the past and and something that need to to change a little bit. Because we, if we all the regions want to grow again and be back on the wine scene, we need to talk about serious, great wines that can be aged forever. And that's what we need to, to prove to the consumers. I really love Beaujolais. And I, I don't know, I don't think we said it in the, in the podcast, but I know you uh, have asked them to get us out there. And I would love to go out there and to, uh, to do um, a journalist trip spend a few days to do some tasting because I've had the chance to be there a couple times and it's a shame that we, we haven't been out there together. I think we would do some real damage. 
Oh, uh, there's no, there's no doubt that we would, we would do some damage at uh, in in Beaujolais. Uh, I, I just absolutely loved my bottle of of wine here, Andre. I'm sorry that you could not get a sip of it. That's okay. Uh, I, I actually I, really, in in spite of the alcohol on this, it's really good. And frankly, it checks all the boxes of what Beaujolais can be. I know Nicola talked about global warming or the the impact of climate change, and I think Gamay is one of those grapes that's going to be a winner because it does cope well with warmer vintages, warmer client climates uh, concentration, but can still hold on to the acid. In spite of the 14% alcohol, it's still balanced. You know, you don't see a lot of, uh, you don't see a lot of Gamay in, uh, in California uh, because I think they burn the heck out of this. Yep. Um, and, and, and it's just, uh, I don't know. I'm so glad that we got to speak to, to Nicola on our first Beaujolais. Uh, you know who I'd really love to, uh, to speak to. You do know. I know you know who I'd love to speak to. Dominique Piron, if we could ever get him on. Oh, it'd be would... uh, it would be him or uh, Julien uh, Revillon, who uh, also has a hand in it. Let's see what I can do. Well, about I know that. you're going. You 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 know, throw out a business card or two, um, pitch it. If you put it this way, if you have to uh, uh, say we'll do the podcast right now, uh, do it. <laughs> okay, let's make that happen. Let's make that happen. Um, I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca, now actually being updated regularly. Uh, if you want to wow. see my thoughts on the 2019 Le Clos Jordan wines, um, I think one of my more unfiltered unfiltered reviews, the uh, juice in the bottle is, is good, but probably not what you're expecting from Le Clos. And also, I don't understand why Artera, in a world where sustainability is front and center, are moving to these like really heavy burgundy shaped bottles. It's really kind of embarrassing for the direction the industry is going. That's all I'm going to say about that. Read the rest at onwinereview.ca. Actually, I'll uh, I'll give a th- shout out to uh, Babbage, which is uh, New Zealand wine. Uh, their 2020 was in a big, thick, fat bottle. You know, I love uh, I love a good Sauvignon Blanc, and their 2021 uh, is almost half the size uh, of a bottle. So, uh, so shout out to them uh, for being more, uh, yeah, I guess, equal friendly. So, I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com, uh, the grape guy on um, most social media. Uh, but Michael Pincus on some others you can find me at. Uh, of course, there is Patreon. Uh, please take a look there. Um, you know, we we appreciate anything that you can give a dollar, two dollars, three dollars a month, five dollars. Uh, we uh, we we always can uh, use the help, and uh, making this podcast better is always our goal. Andre, would you like to take it away this afternoon? Good night. But it's the afternoon. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.